You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. All right, well, let's read together. This is from uh, chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 2 of uh, Revelation in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord at Pergamum write this, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word, the power of your word, the truth of your word, and how your word just cuts to the chase, cuts right to it, challenges us affirms us, promises your rewards to us. God, we thank you for your word. Today we ask that you'd open our hearts and minds that we could understand what it is you have for us, for our church, and for us individually. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, if any of you know me any at all, you know that I am an introvert. Uh, I've always have been an introvert. I can kind of step out of introversion sometimes and, and uh, be a little bit of an extrovert, but Pastor Jeff is an extrovert. So you see the difference, right? Uh, he is definitely out there all the time, right? Uh, and an introvert uh, is very much kind of uh, uh, in a lot, inward a lot. Introverts, because of that, we often struggle with things like depression, and we struggle with social anxieties, and we struggle even with self-worth issues. Uh, Those struggles are sometimes a result of outward pressure, uh, outward external issues like finances, uh, maybe jobs or peers, um, or even family issues and the like. Uh, But most of the struggles um, that we have are internal, and those are feelings of not being worthy, feelings of not being good enough or not being accepted or welcomed, maybe even not liking who we are. And I'm really no different. I've spent uh, the last several years in Celebrate Recovery, that being the main thing that I've been working through is my own, uh, my own introversion of uh, depression. Now, it's not wrong to be an introvert. There are some great introverts. There's nothing bad about being an introvert, but Sometimes we can let those internal things um, become an issue for us. 
And I know that uh, several of you have uh, mentioned to me over the last several months that uh, you've been praying for me, and uh, I very much appreciate that because uh, there have been some, some deep, dark struggles in the last year, and uh, almost every bit of that has been internal. Our challenge today from the church at Pergamum is not a lot different because we're not talking as much about external pressures as we are about internal issues within the church. You know, very few of us, we have these major spiritual issues that come at us from the outside. Most of our issues come at us from the inside, and that's where we are today. So Jesus starts out this letter with a commendation. Uh, from the one who is the truth, from the sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's the sword of truth. Only one does that, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sword. He is the word. Now, being double-edged, this sword doesn't just cut, but it also cures. It doesn't just hurt, but it also heals. That's one of the beautiful things about this sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Word. And this is none other than Jesus himself, the truth. And one of the things that he tells us here is that I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell. I know where you are. In his omniscience, Jesus knows where you are. He knows what you're dealing with every day, day in, day out, every moment of every day. He knows. Whether it be, you know, peers at school who are uh, jeering at you or maybe even threatening you in some way. Maybe it's coworkers, you know, that are stepping all over you so they can climb the corporate ladder or maybe backstabbing or that sort of thing. He knows about the political climate that you're living in, whether that be nationwide or even like in your family, where politics become an issue. He knows your family issues. He knows those times when there are more bills at the end of the month, when there's paycheck. He knows. And here, he's showing us that he wants you to know that he knows, so that you can know that you're not alone. In the same way he wants the church at Pergamum to know you're not alone, I understand. Even though you live in the city where Satan dwells, it's a pretty harsh reality, right? Where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. So let me introduce you to Pergamum. Just a few uh, facts about it, I guess. Uh, Pergamum was the official capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Um, just like in the United States, we have different states, and each state has its own capital. Uh, in the Roman Empire, there were different uh, uh, places that were kind of like states, um, and each one of those had its own uh, capital of sorts. And Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor in this province. Uh, 
Um, Pergamum was a very important place uh, for many reasons. One thing, it had the second largest library in the world at the time. So a lot of literature there. Um, Alexandria, Egypt had the biggest, and Pergamum was second. Over 200,000 volumes there, crazy, huge library. It was also a center for uh, a lot of pagan uh, temples. Uh, temples dedicated to Dionysus, Athena, Asclepius, Demeter, and probably several other that I'm pronouncing wrong. But also, one of the biggest ones, and one that was known as one of the great wonders of the ancient world, was the temple to Zeus, which we know from theology, uh, from uh, the history of the world or whatever, that Zeus was known as the god of all gods, right? And so not... Not too much different than like what Paul, what Paul dealt with in, uh, in Athens in Acts verse, chapter 17. Remember there was all these, uh, all these altars to so many different gods and even to uh, the unknown God. They didn't want to miss anybody. So very similar here, there probably was an altar to just about every possible deity. So it was steeped in pagan religion. But it wasn't just pagan religion. There was also steeped in political worship. See, Pergamum was the official center of worship for the Roman emperor, and thus also the Roman government. There were three temples in Pergamum itself dedicated to Roman emperors. Three. And there was even one that they were given the right to build that was dedicated to a living emperor, the first city ever given that permission. So at every turn, at every gathering, at every party, at every festival, every feast, there would have been some sort of pagan ritual connected to those. And there certainly would have been some sort of uh, a public uh, gathering of worship to any one or all of these deities. And refusing to partake in any of those festivals or feasts, it would have definitely meant withdrawing from a significant portion of social life there in that city in that time. And in many cases, that withdrawal from the public life would also cost you your job because it would cost you your trades because there were gods to the different trades. And if you didn't worship those gods, then you don't deserve to have this trade. And so people would lose their jobs and their livelihood and become an outcast overnight by not worshiping these deities. So you can see this place was definitely not hospitable to Christ followers, but Jesus commends them for remaining true to their faith. They maintained their witness, and they were faithful in their confession of Christ is Lord. They were even faithful in the face of some direct persecution. Um, here it mentions uh, Antipas, and the martyrdom of Antipas. Uh, not a lot is known about Antipas, even though there's some discrepancy in the spelling of his name. Um, he possibly could have been the pastor of the church at Pergamum, um, but there's some church history that says there was an Antipas that was uh, placed inside of a copper bull and burned alive. So we don't know exactly who this Antipas was, but nonetheless, it was a public execution specifically against his faith in Christ, and yet he did not denounce his faith. Likewise, those in Pergamum who were followers of Christ, 
even in the face of Antipas's death, they did not turn away. And Jesus is, is affirming them here. He's congratulating them, thanking them for staying faithful. Now, in the two previous letters that we got to the last couple of weeks, Ephesus and Smyrna, there was a renewed challenge to resist the pressures from the outside. Uh, there was a reminder to stay firm in the world as it was because they were struggling with those things, right? But here, Jesus is commending the church at Pergamum for staying faithful in the midst of this external pressure. But David Platt, a theologian, says this, the church of the Lord Jesus has struggled to understand a valuable lesson throughout her history. Her greatest dangers are almost never from the outside. They're always on the inside. The enemy really is within. Our greatest threats to spiritual health and life are not opposition or even persecution from unbelieving, evil, and wicked men energized by Satan. Rather, it is when we allow in our community of faith spiritual Trojan horses that will sow seeds of destruction given the opportunity. Now this toxin is easy to identify with a simple word, compromise. Nothing will poison the body of Christ like the poison called compromise. I think David Platt hit the nail on the head. With this idea in mind, Jesus turns immediately from this acclamation to a warning. Even though he's commending them for their faith in the face of external pressures, he's warning them very harshly here about internal compromise. You see, they were a little bit more open-minded. They were a little bit more progressive. They were a little bit more tolerant of things that the world might applaud. And they were beginning to compromise. And Jesus was not pleased. And there are two areas of primary concern shown here. The teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So let's talk about Balaam first. Most people know him for his donkey, right? Um, the only animal besides the serpent in the scripture that speaks. And uh, so Balaam is a pagan, um, he's a pagan prophet, and uh, he is known for what he blesses is blessed, and what he curses is cursed. There was a king at the time, a king of Moab named Balak. Uh, Balak was very nervous because the Israelite army had moved into his area, and he knew that they were there to conquer the whole area. And he wanted some sort of advantage over this army because they were much larger than his army. And so he contracts Balaam to come and pronounce a curse over this army so maybe he can have some sort of advantage. He sends his entourage to Balaam. Balaam goes and prays, and the Lord says, don't go. Uh, this is not for you. Don't go. So Balaam tells them he's not going to go. This happens a couple times, and eventually he agrees, I'm going to go. I'll go. On the journey back to Balak, that's when we have this encounter that we know so well of Balaam's donkey, because the Lord puts um, an angel of the Lord in the way, and the donkey is, his eyes are open, excuse me, her eyes are open. I don't know why the Bible says it's a her rather than him, but hey, it's okay. Um, that little piece of information 
It's funny what the Bible adds in there, right? Uh, but she sees this angel of the Lord and, uh, who is in the way, and she just stops completely. Uh, Balaam is able to get her going again. Uh, this happens a second time. She sees the angel of the Lord and stops, and again, it happens a third time. And this time, she is not moving an inch. And Balaam gets so angry, he is ready to kill this donkey. But the Lord opens the donkey's mouth, and she says this, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, No. I find it funny here that he doesn't even comment about the fact that his donkey is talking to him. But he's so angry, he's so frustrated, he's so flustered that all he can say is, no, this is not normal for you to do this to me. Just as he says that, God opens his eyes and he's able to see the angel of the Lord in the pathway. He recognizes his, his sinfulness. He confesses it. And the angel of the Lord tells him to go ahead and go with Balak. But only speak the words that I tell you to speak. So Balaam gets to Balak. They go up onto this mountain where they can see the armies of the Lord and the armies of the Israelites. And they present offerings there. And Balak is ready to feel and hear this curse coming down from Balaam. But when Balaam opens his mouth, all he can do is utter what the Lord had told him to utter praises and blessings over the Israelite army. Obviously, Balaam is, Balak is probably not very happy about that, but this happens two or three times. Same story. They offer offerings, um, sacrifices. Balaam utters blessing over the Israelite army. And eventually, Numbers 25, 24 excuse me, tells us that they go their separate ways. And you can find this story in Numbers 22 through 24. But at this point, we think, well, Balaam, Balaam's doing pretty good. We can almost applaud what he's done here because he's followed God's word. He's done exactly what God's told him to do. Only pronounce what I tell you to pronounce. But this is not the end of the story. You see, in chapter 25, the very next chapter, verse 1 of the very next chapter, immediately we hear this that the Israelites begin to whore with the daughters of Balaam, excuse me, the daughters of Moab. Now, I tried to find a better word. I tried to find a, a more acceptable word. Even my uh, word processor said you might want to choose a different word because this might be offensive to some. But that's the only word that's appropriate here. The Israelites began to whore with the daughters of Moab because that's what they were doing it wasn't just the sexual Im impurities here the immorality here it was also that the the Moab women were calling them to come and celebrate in their feasts to eat their foods that were offered to their idols it was immorality and idolatry together so now what did this have to do with Balaam though he already left, right? Well, we hear just a little bit later, Moses tells us over in chapter 31, verse 16, that this plan was Balaam's idea. It doesn't tell us exactly what Balaam might have said, 
but I propose it might have gone something sort of like this, where Balaam said to Balak, look, I was only doing what the Lord commanded, but I've got an idea for you. Your Moabite women are beautiful. I bet if you sent them into the Israelite camp, the men will not be able to resist their beauty. Get your women to entice them to even, in, even join in your feasts and your festivals. And even though I could not curse them as you had hoped, before long the Israelites will bring God's curses upon themselves. And they did. Now this incident with Balaam being all his idea is one of two major problems um, in, in the history of Israel's exodus. You remember Aaron and the golden calf where Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and the people down uh, at the bottom of the mountain, they convince Aaron to create this golden structure, throws it in the fire, it comes out as a calf. And, you know, and they begin to worship this calf. You know, that's a terrible thing. Well, this incident, along with Aaron and the golden calf, these are the two most despicable moments in Israel's history as we're referring to the Exodus. Every Jewish child would have heard these stories over and over and over again. These two stories would have been the two most used trying to warn them to stay faithful to God, to follow God with everything you got. So when Jesus is warning Pergamum against the teaching of Balaam, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He's warning them against moral failure. And the stumbling block in this verse, it refers to both immorality and idolatry. And just like the Israelites before them, the Pergamite church was celebrating the idols of the culture. They were adopting the sexual ethics of the culture. See, compromise, accommodation, those were the identifying markers. You know, they attempted to serve God, but in the process, they were allowing the prevailing cultural norms to shape their thinking and their lifestyles. They'd neglected Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this age. They'd ignored James 4.4, 4, where James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wants to be friends with the world becomes an enemy of God. James calls them here adulteresses. But they weren't only in danger of compromising their morality. They were also in danger of compromising their theology. And that's where we get to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's not a whole lot out there about the Nicolaitans. They actually disappeared from history, uh, I think somewhere around the second century. But we hear them just a little bit earlier. Jeff talked about them a couple weeks ago. Um, they're mentioned in the, the letter to the church of Ephesus. And the Ephesian church was great at rejecting them. But here, it appears that some in the Pergamum church, they were embracing them. Now, the behaviors of the Nicolaitans were very similar to what we're talking about with the teachings of Balaam. Sexual immorality, uh, the uh, eating of uh, food offered to, uh, to idols. Uh, the behavior was very similar. Still mostly sexual immorality and idolatry. But the difference, though, is that the Nicolaitan behavior was motivated by an eroded and misguided theology of grace. 
The Nicolaitans, they believed that God's grace released them from any obligation to observe the moral laws. Basically, you could live however you wanted to live as long as you still uh, tried to follow God, still believed in God's grace. God's grace was enough, right? But the danger here is more than just going with the flow. The danger here is believing the flow is going in the right direction. And beyond this, the Nicolaitans, they were known for being very active and passionately and loudly trying to teach others this theology. Does any of this sound like our church today? Does any of this sound like you today? See, there's four reasons that Christians compromise. The first one can sometimes be a fear of rejection. You know, I don't want to be different than everybody else. I don't want to be uh, called out or pointed out or singled out from the crowd. So there's a fear of rejection, so you give in. Sometimes the reason might be tolerance, just a sympathy to those beliefs or practices that differ from God's. Sometimes it might be an outright pleasure, this willingness to give in in order to be happy. I see what they've got. They look happy. I want what they've got. This idea of pleasure. A fourth one is kind of sad, pretty sad. That's just laziness. Sometimes the reason Christians compromise is we're just lazy, and we, don't just, we just don't feel like fighting anymore, and we just give up and give in. Most of the time, it's a combination of those four things, maybe even all of those four things, as to why we might compromise. But that compromise leads us down a very slippery slope. And uh, there's, a, there's a progression on a slippery slope um, of compromise. You can find all kinds of lists like this online, and they're all generally in the same uh, mindset. But there's about five things that um, are in this progression of compromise. The first one is, it simply begins with a failure to purpose in our hearts ahead of time to do what is right, to set up those guardrails in our lives, uh, to uh, choose this day whom you will serve, to make that conscious decision beforehand. You know, thinking you're, uh, thinking you're strong enough to resist in the moment, in some sort of reactionary way, that's a lie. Thinking you're smart enough to recognize the attacks of the enemy. That's a lie. You need to purpose in your heart today before any of those things come. Secondly, on this slippery slope, it's when you begin to underestimate evil or even begin to flirt with temptation. Just a little bit. Just a little look. It won't hurt. You see, the Bible says and teaches that the devil and his agents, they present themselves as agents of light. They present themselves as beautiful, as you know, roses and rainbows and unicorns. They're beautiful things that we want. And we're attracted to this beauty, just like the Israelites and the Moabite women. And we begin to flirt with those temptations. Third, then we start rationalizing and we start justifying. 
You know, our desires, they begin to blind us to the truth. You know, there was an old musical, I think it was in the early 90s, I remember singing, and for some reason this line is still in my brain. It says, I wants what I wants when I wants it, and I wants what I wants right now. We want it, and so we begin to justify it. We begin to rationalize it. Because we want it so bad, we begin to make excuses for it. We start making reasons for the wrongs to be okay. But then, fourth, we then make a conscience choice to indulge. There's a sudden, deliberate decision to give in. You know, no one just accidentally falls into sinfulness. There's a decision, there's a choice um, that is made. You know, the restraints are removed. The consequences, we just ignore them. Our conscience becomes hardened, and then the sin is committed. Now, as bad as all that is, there's one more step on this slippery slope of compromise that I think is becoming its own evil pandemic today, and that is redefinition. We begin to redefine what is wrong in order to try and make it right so that we can feel better about ourselves, and so we kind of get rid of this sense of guilt. We redefine it. I love this story from Abraham Lincoln. He once uh, asked an audience this question. How many legs does a dog have if you count the tail as a leg? When they answered five, Lincoln told them the answer was wrong. The answer is four. The fact that you called the, le- the tail a leg did not make it a leg. Still only four legs. You know, we see this redefining overtaking a lot of our conversations today. Whether we're talking about, you know, race relations or gender identity, sexual preference, or a multitude of other things, there's an erosion of truth. What I think, what I believe, what I feel, it has overtaken what actually is. And it's not just enough... Uh, It's not enough just to have the freedom to think these things, to feel these things, to claim these things, but it is urgent now that I get you to also adopt those things as truth. So accommodating this ambiguous, ever-changing new truth is holding to the teachings of Balaam and attempting to redefine that truth and call everyone else to claim it as such That's the Nicolaitans. And Jesus' call to the church at Pergamum is the same as this call is today. It's the same as it is to you today. Number one, simply, unequivocally, repent. Repent. It's a word of command from Jesus himself. The imperative, it's got a note of urgency to it. Don't delay. Don't wait. Do it now. There's no need. There's no time for debate or discussion or dialogue. God's word is not up for discussion. Repent. And as a warning to those who don't repent, Jesus says he will personally Come and fight with the truth. And his weapon against those who don't repent will be himself the sword of truth. And when Jesus says that he is coming soon, the connotation is that he's coming sooner than you think, without delay, even 
with surprise. And I don't know about you, but I don't want any part of that. So if you've got any part of the teaching of Balaam, any part of the theology of Nicolaitans, I urge you to heed this warning from Jesus and repent. Turn away, turn back toward Jesus. But the good news, for those who overcome, whether that be by repentance or by never falling away from the faith at all, for those who overcome, there is great reward. And the first reward mentioned here is that Christ will nourish us. This hidden manna, uh, of course, it relates to the manna that was uh, provided in the wilderness when, uh, when God provided the nourishment for his people as they were escaping the Egyptian bondage. And some of that manna was placed into uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was hidden away for future generations as a memorial. It was also the symbol of the true and proper food for the Israelites, as opposed to the unclean food that was partaken and offered to idols. But John six fifty one, Jesus talks about he is the manna from heaven. He says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So the hidden manna is also referring to eternal life for believers. But it's not just some future hope for future glory of being with Christ for all of eternity. Jesus is the bread of life. It has an ever-presentness, contemporary angle to it. His nourishment is both spiritually and physically for today just as much as all eternity. So he will nourish us. Second, he will receive us. This white stone, there, there are many different illusions that would work with this, and none of them any more pertinent or any of a better example. It's more like all of them work together to, prevent, to present a beautiful uh, understanding here. Because this white stone, it could have been a stone of acquittal uh, at a trial versus a black stone, which would have been for uh, being guilty. Um, white stones were often used as like a ticket to, uh, like an invitation to a uh, fancy dinner or banquet. Um, a white stone might have been related to the, uh, uh, what do you call that, the Urim, I believe, uh, of the high priest, the breastplate that they wore. The white of the stone would have signified purity or even victory. So all of these things kind of work together. And the bottom line is that it points to acceptance. It points to victory in Christ. He's our high priest. He's our righteousness. He's our victory. And he gives us this white stone that can never be taken away. But just like the manna we talked about a minute ago, it's not just some future um, gift that can be given to us because this victory has already been won. You know, this is not some future war where the outcome is unsure, right? The battle's already been fought. The battle has already been won, and we're on the victor's side, and we can celebrate that even today. So Christ will provide for us. He'll receive us, and third, he'll acknowledge us. On that white stone was written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And there are two possible interpretations for this. 
Notice that it says a new name, not necessarily your new name or his new name. But both of those interpretations work here because we know that we will receive a new name just as we have become new creatures, new creation in Christ. We will receive a new name. And we don't fully know what that is right now, but when we meet Jesus in heaven, we will know that new name and all of everything that we have experienced in all of our life to create and mold us into who we are in Christ will be enveloped in that new name. Secondly, it also could be Christ's new name because we read in Luke 10, verse 17, that no one knows this name except Jesus himself and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal it. And he writes this name on the forehead of believers. And this connotation here is that today in this world, we're looking through a dim picture. We can't fully understand Christ. We can't fully understand all that he is and all that he has done in our lives. But then on this white stone, we see this new name of his and we will fully understand who he is and what he's done. So this new name, I don't think needs to be either this or this. I think it's both. I think, and there are several that uh, kind of agree with this, that we really can't know Christ's new name without our new name because they work together. As he is all that he is, he has molded us in the way he's molded us, and the two work together. And so I think uh, that that's, that's what this new name is talking about. But nonetheless, what this is saying is that Christ acknowledges us. He acknowledges this new name that fully enlightens our acceptance of his transformation in our lives. He acknowledges us. So now what? How do you follow up a message like this? Something that's so relevant for today, but also quite clear in what we need to do. First, if you're anywhere, even remotely on that slippery slope, the call is to repent. Anywhere on any of those stages of that slippery slope, repent. Turn away from whatever those things you're believing are, those things that don't line up with Scripture. Repent, turn away from those, and turn back towards the truth, the only truth, the all-encompassing truth in Christ alone. Secondly, set in your hearts today, even now, urgently with the ultimate compulsion that you have to stay firm in the faith. And the only way to do that is to draw near to God. To fill your mind with His truth. Nothing more, nothing less. I think we all could agree that uh, this world is this massive pit of shifting sand. Every day, new beliefs, new understandings, new whatevers, right? But the only defense against that is to have what Jesus describes in Matthew 7 as a foundation of rock on which to build your life. A foundation that won't move, a foundation that won't crumble, it won't shake, it won't fail, it won't fall. And this foundation, Jesus says plainly, it's his word. 
Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make every effort literally means to pursue. It's an active, sustained, vigorous effort to pursue holiness. And in Philippians 3, that same word is translated as press on, to press on with endurance towards this goal. So make every effort, strive, pursue, press on. Literally, those words mean persecute. Persecute means to track down in order to harm or destroy. So persecute, vigorously track down and destroy anything that attacks your holiness. And you do that with the word of God, his truth. This is not a passive Christianity. This is a very active, vigorous, purposeful persecution of anything but the truth in our lives. His truth is the only truth. So you're standing firm on that foundation. Or have you let some casual lies creep in and begin to chip away at that foundation? Are you all too familiar with that slippery slope of compromise? So if so, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word that so clearly calls us to repentance. To turn away from those things that might have crept into our lives, things that we need to purge and vigorously get rid of. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to those things even this morning. And God, we pray that you'd help us to take your word, plant it in our hearts, that we would have the tools necessary to, to defend against the arrows of the enemy. And God, we thank you for the rewards that you promise. Rewards that aren't just for some future enjoyment in eternity, but provision for today. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.